in this series, we're trying to get a glimpse of the one big story of the Bible from the beginning pages of Genesis all the way to maps, okay? We're trying to get a perspective that allows us to see the major people, places, and events that make up God's story. Um, I love how Brian framed this last week. Do you remember what he said? He said, the Bible is a collection of books written by people for people. In other words, the people that are responsible in working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit are saying something in here that's really important. They're wanting you to see God for who he is. They're wanting to communicate something. They're wanting you to get something, okay? And again, some of you treasure the Bible. Some of you have doubts about the Bible, but I just want to remind you of the question again that Brian posed last week. What if, what if God is actually better than you have believed? What if God is actually better than you have believed? And what if the big story of the Bible is not just about some God, but a good, good father, all right? In the opening pages of Genesis, we're told that God created the world and that it was good. But most of us at an early age recognize that something has gone wrong, right? In fact, many of us can even recognize that brokenness inside of us. I discovered this in sixth grade. I am <laughs> almost ashamed to admit this here, but I, Max Vanderpool, was a liar. I was a big liar. Uh, in, in fifth and sixth grade, I tried to do football. My mom would not let me. I look back now and I'm so grateful because otherwise I would be crippled today. <laughs> Us little guys don't do well in football. I tried out for Little League Baseball and I was on the team. And every time I got up to bat, one of two things happened. I either struck out or I was walked to first base. My role on the baseball team was right field. If you know anything about baseball, you put the weakest player in right field. That's where they go. And when we won the Little League Championship, I felt, you know, there was a part of me, I just felt like, yeah, I contributed nothing, nothing to that. <laughs> but we won, okay? So I wanted so, I hadn't started band yet, and so I didn't have a tribe, I didn't have people, and I wanted so badly to be accepted by uh, my friends, by the people that I was going to school with, I just started inventing stories of things that I did with my grandfather. Because in sixth grade, now back then, sixth grade was uh, not like middle, it wasn't part of middle school, it was the oldest grade in grade school, and you were with the same teacher all day long, okay? So I was with Mr. O. And once a week, Mr. O had this share time where we could just share stories and stuff. And I got really good at concocting stories about what the exploits I had with my grandfather, about how we would go fishing. We would fish here. And one time we came across a skunk. And, and my friends, however many weeks into it, was like, man, I wish I did that kind of stuff with my grandpa. Your grandpa sounds so cool. Do you know how many times I fished with my grandpa Vanderpool? Zero. Zip. Nada. Okay? And it began, it actually began eating at me at night. Like, because I would lie, I remember lying awake in bed and thinking to myself, what if they find out? Like, what if they find out I'm lying? Or worse, what if grandpa finds out? Oh, crap. Like, so 
I was scared, I was worried, I felt bad, and I was stuck, and I was trapped as a sixth grader, because <laughs> I was a liar. It's no coincidence that a year later, my grandpa died, and I, I remember several weeks, it seemed like the preacher was preaching on the same thing, which was namely, you know, you're a sinner, but God will accept you anyway because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And I remember one Sunday morning, I just was looking around the room and, there, and they did this hymn, they called it an altar call and you had to get up out of your seat and walk, come down to the front. But uh, I, I just could feel the Holy Spirit in me and I looked around and I was like, man, all these people got what he's talking about and I want that too. And so I went forward because I was like, you mean, even though I'm a liar, you know, I can be in and this can be, woo, sold. Where do I sign? I signed the card. Cool. We're going to get wet. No problem. Check. Done. This sounds really good to me. Okay. We all recognize that brokenness. We do. In Genesis chapters one and two, God, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, he hurled galaxies into place by the power of his word. Uh, mountains were formed, valleys were carved, birds took to flight, fish, and what are the animals? The swami swans and the barbalute suits, <laughs> okay? All of the creatures, and it was good, but it only took three chapters for it to get all messed up, three chapters, right? So if you brought a Bible, we'll be in Genesis chapter three today, Genesis chapter three. As I said, a lot of us know that something has gone wrong in the world. We know it because we've lived it and we've experienced hurts and disappointments. Some of us, we had parents, one parent who walked out. We had uh, family members who did bad things. We've been the victims of lies. I, you know, it seems like as soon as you go to middle school, you discover kids talk, kids gossip, and kids trash talk. And sometimes you're the object of all that talk and scorn, okay? Three chapters to mess it up. I, I don't intend to answer the big questions of why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Those are good questions. Um, and we'll be talking about them probably in our coffee house forum. But today, I want you to see when things got broken and why things got broken. And I want you to see something very important in the midst of it, all right? So if you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to Genesis chapter 3, but I'm going to read you one verse from chapter 2, verse 9, and they'll put that up here. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees, two trees. One tree gives you life. It's communion with God. It's God-breathed. It's eternal. It's perfect. The other tree represented the knowledge of good and evil, an opportunity and an obstacle, in a sense. Did you know that every character in every major story that gets told has to make a choice? Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, am I going to go on this quest? Will I carry this ring to Mount Doom? Harry Potter Will I actually lay down my life and let Voldemort kill me for my friends? Will it actually work out? I mean, every story, Captain Kirk, Spock, 
you know, boom, in the wrath of Khan, the enterprise is going to blow up. And he gets up out of his seat. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And he killed, literally, he kills himself by radiation so that he can save his crewmates. Every major character in every major story is faced with a choice. And I want to remind those of you that are younger that the choices that you make now put you on roads and paths that take you where you end up later on, right? Part of the reason I'm here today is because years and years ago, I chose Jenny Lynn Thompson over Jenny Rice, over Shelley Buchanan, over Amy Moore, over, okay? I chose Jenny, part of the reason I'm here today. I chose years ago to help start Generations Community Church, okay? So choices position you and put you places, but sometimes... Sometimes characters in stories, sometimes even the best characters, miss out. They confuse the obstacle with the opportunity, the obstacle with the objective, right? Harry Potter, um, uh, Frodo does this in the very last part of The Lord of the Rings, right? He's gone the whole way, and what does he do at the very end? He puts the ring on, the one thing he wasn't going to do, and he does it, Okay? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we're told something very important. And they'll put that up on the screen, and I'll read it from my paper Bible. Here it goes. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So we have this garden. People are in it. It's good. It's perfect. God has given them the opportunity to know him and enjoy him, to name the animals. It's good. And Satan, the villain in this story, comes crawling along in the form of a serpent and poses a question to Eve. And this is a very important because of what he asks, all right? Notice what he says. Did God really say you must not? See, Satan isn't... Satan isn't trying to get Eve to immediately jettison God. Satan isn't trying to paint out evil as better than good. Satan is planting a seed of doubt. Hey, I know you think God's awesome and everything, but has it ever entered your mind that maybe he's not as good as you think he is? Have you ever considered the possibility that because he told you not to eat that tree that he's, he's holding out on you? Come on, what do you really know? And in that moment, the, the seed of doubt takes root. Maybe God isn't as good as I thought. Maybe, there, maybe I need something more than God in order to complete me, in order to have what it is that I, I think I want. And so I want to tell you that the, our enemy, the villain in this story, has been tempting human beings the same way ever since. If, you'll, if they'll put this quote up from A.W. Tozer, A.W. Tozer was this preacher famous in Chicagoland from the 1950s. Uh, I love Tozer because he just, you know, boom, he would deliver the goods like no tomorrow. But he has this famous question. Uh, he has this famous statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, right? Let me, let me ask some questions related to that. Do we believe that God is really good? Do we believe that God is really love? Do we believe that he's with us or that he wants to be a part of our lives? Do we believe that he created us on purpose, right? 
you and I are going to be tempted the same way that Eve was, to doubt God's goodness. Something's going to happen. The car's going to break down. There's going to be a medical diagnosis. There's going to be a whole host of things. And in that moment, you're going to conclude, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is broken. This is wrong. It's God's fault. God's holding out. And, and that doubt is going to take root. The way we answer those questions really says a lot about the way that we'll read God's story. Because we kind of read things, don't we, through our experience? In Genesis 3, verse 6, this is what we're told. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Believing that they needed to add something to their experience of the garden, that they needed to add something to God, she reached for the wrong thing, right? So they left the story of God in order to make their own story. And this is the moment that sin entered the world. Theologians have talked about this for ages, right? Now, sin is a word, let's admit, today it makes everyone uncomfortable. Because we tend to think of sin as the, the guy with the 1980s George Bush glasses with the megaphone, you are a sinner, you are going to burn in hell. God hates sinners. Beware the wrath of God. And he'll have a placard or something like that. Maybe he'll have a cross when he comes to your campus and list all of your sins. Okay? Sometimes we, we get messed up because those words freak us out. God's wrath, the anger of God, sin, hell. We don't like those things today, do we? But sin, actually, the word sin in the Bible comes from uh, this term that has to do with missing the mark. Anyone here do archery? Anyone here do archery, right? When you go to, okay, when you go to an archery competition, you have a bow and arrow, and at the very end of the long line of the building, there is what? A target. And your goal as an archer is to release the bow in such a way that it hits the target. Sin, the word sin in the Bible means missing the target. So when the Bible is talking about sin, it's saying to us that we've missed the target. I love the way Reggie Joyner defines sin. He tweaks it and he says, I find it helpful to see that sin is often meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. When I graduated from high school, there was a cluster of us, there were about nine of us, and we were really close friends. And one of our friends, she was a girl, I won't say her name, I'll just call her Amy for now, okay? So Amy, uh, her dad mistreated her, she was abused by her uncle, um, her mom uh, was kind of a functional alcoholic, and so when we all started college, Amy had one boy after another, and it seemed like on the first or second date, Amy was sexually active, boom, 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 and all of us... Cammie, you know, Jody, all of us were like, Amy, you're being stupid. What are you doing? You know, this is, this is going to ruin your life. You're on a bad road, blah, blah, blah. You know, we were trying. But looking back now, I see what Amy was doing. Amy, Amy didn't have intimacy. Amy was trying to, she didn't know God, and she was trying to fill this tremendous void for being known. 
And she was doing it sexually with one boy after another, only it wasn't taking her where she wanted to go. It was taking her to a different place. So one of the ways in which we see sin play out in our lives, right, is that often we're trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And so in a moment of insecurity, Eve listens to the voice of the serpent and, and grabs the fruit. She, she takes, makes the wrong decision in a sense. And everything broke. And everything has been broken since then. It, and it created a chain reaction of blame, right? So God shows up in the garden. Adam, Adam, where are you, right? We're naked. Huh? Who told you you were naked? Oh, God, this slithering thing came in here and it tried to tell me and... And then Adam, oh, God, this woman you put in here with me, she gave me this thing, you know, the blame game. Have you ever been part of the blame game? If you have brothers and sisters, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes, I have been part of the blame game, okay? <laughs> right? Boom. Brokenness, broken relationships, and it's all right here in Genesis chapter 3. If you look to Genesis chapter uh, 3, verses, let's say, 20 and 21, I, there are a couple of things I noticed in preparing. Uh, I, I've read the Bible through 20-some times, and this go-around, I was like, I never saw that. Like, I never saw that, okay? So I want to share one of my, I never saw that moments with you, okay? It's verses 20 and 21. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live, all who lived. Adam named Eve after everything got broken and messed up. And he doesn't... Now, in Hebrew, names are important. It's not just a name like Tom or Betsy. The name actually means something, and it's tied to your identity. Um... And so Adam, in naming his woman, in naming his wife, names her something positive. I'm floored by this, right? You have, you're now, it's broken. You're estranged from God. You did the thing you weren't supposed to do, and she's the one that gave you the fruit, right? Time to name her. Oh, I know what your name is, honey. Your name is Mistaker. Your name is stupid. You want to know why? Because stupid is as stupid does. Your name is, wouldn't it make sense that Adam would do that? And look, right here in the story is a little expression of grace. A little expression of grace. Adam names his wife based on her potential. She's going to be the mother of all. And then in that same verse, we see an expression of grace from God. God shows up, and the Lord God, verse 21, made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. They were naked. They had committed the act they weren't supposed to commit. They had distrusted God and his goodness. Did God run away? No, God showed up. And what happens? Animal skins. Let me connect some dots from you, for you. In order for there to be animal skins, there had to be what? animals, <laughs> which meant that some animals had to die so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. 
I know we don't like to talk about God's anger and wrath and stuff like that, and, and we're going to tie it together in the weeks ahead, but I just want to plant a seed today and ask this simple question. What if we've looked at wrath the wrong way in Western culture? What if it's the case that we've assumed, oh, God's wrath is on us, against us, not seeing the love that drives it instead of seeing that God's angry for us? Right? I've discovered this as my kids have gotten older. And I can identify with the times now in the Bible where God is fuming and he seems so angry and he's like, you were like a harlot. I told you to do this and you didn't do it. And and he's fuming. Why? Because he's so passionately for Israel. And I get it now that I'm a dad. I'm like, I'm so passionately for my children. And when they steer left, when they should have gone right, and then there, it's misery and tragedy. My anger, my wrath, my passion is at a level, you know, DEFCON 1, launch the nukes. But it's not because I want to destroy them or kill them or hurt them or harm them. It's because I love them and I want the best for them. And if I, as a weak, sinful, earthly father, feel that way, how much more does our heavenly father, who is perfect, feel that way? All right? There's so much packed in these two verses. Um, Skip ahead to verses uh, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? Seems like things are getting worse now. God tells him, woman, you're going to have birth pains, labor. It's going to hurt when you have kids. Man, you're going to have to make your living off the ground. It's going to be work. It's going to be hard. And now, boom, they're banished out of Eden. I see another expression of grace in here. And I want you to see it too. What if they reach out, take the fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will what? Live forever. They will live forever in what state? They will live forever in sin, separated from God and broken. God, because he loves them, will not have it be a permanent static thing that there's no way possible for them to be reconciled. So he banishes them from Eden. Yes, God was angry, but he was angry for them. I know some of you, because of the culture that we live in, have struggled with thinking that God's angry with you. Um, You feel like you've messed up. You feel like you've done some things that you're ashamed of and and that you're out of the reach of God's grace. You're out of the reach of God's love. (laughs) Nothing could be farther from the truth. Because we see in the midst of this tragedy in Genesis chapter 3, little expressions of grace that are indicators. In English class, we call this foreshadowing. Foreshadowing of things that are to come. All right? I want you to, I want to end with uh, a big foreshadowing that's in Genesis 3 verse 15. And they'll put that up there. I will cause hostility between you and the woman. 
He's talking to the serpent. Between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And in my Bible, in the middle section, it says, see Romans 16.20. So I flip ahead to Romans 16.20. And it says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Foreshadowing. Right there in Genesis chapter 3. Here's where I want to end today. God created a good world to reveal how good he is. Adam and Eve doubted that God was as good as they thought. And so they rebelled. And we've been doing it ever since. And our lives have the brokenness and train wreck qualities that our original parents had. But God did not abandon them, and he has not abandoned us. And that's important to remember. In order to make this clear, I want to tell you a little bit about my family tree. So if you'll put my pictures up there. Believe it or not, I come from the stock of good Italian immigrants. Comes through my mother's side of the family. They were the Rubinos. Eh, the Rubinos. Apparently, based on the stories that I've been told, my great-grandparents and my grandparents could have had their lives unfold on an HBO miniseries. It's that good. When I was younger and thought I wanted to run for political office, my grandmother would tell me, Mark, honey, you'll never be president. There are skeletons in your closet that preclude that. <laughs> so here are some of the Rabinos. They look nice, don't they? If we can go to the next picture... Here, I'll show you an early picture of my mom. She's right there. Oh, I know. Don't tell her I showed this. Should we? Right, okay. So there's, there's uncle and aunt, okay. So let, go, to the, go to the next one. This is the only color picture we have of Grandma and Grandpa Rubino. Grandma and Grandpa Rubino were my great-grandparents. They came over to America on the boat from Italy, okay? Straight from Italy. Apparently, Grandpa Rubino had some connections with my familia. <laughs> and apparently, as I've been told, he murdered a man. The police fingered him for it, and they, the, his lawyer said to him, Mr. Rubino, uh, the trial is this many months away. Because of the nature of the evidence, if your wife were to happen to be pregnant during the trial... I'm pretty sure I could get you off. And so, of course, Grandma Rubino becomes pregnant for the trial. Their oldest child, by the way, at this time is already married. Okay? They were done having children. So the trial comes. He's acquitted. They have the baby, and that's my grandmother, Paulina. Well, they were done having kids. They didn't want to have anything to do with Paulina, so they ship Paulina off to live with her married sister, Mary. You raise her. We don't want her. So if you go to the next picture, this is Paulina, my grandmother. She looks like a movie star, doesn't she? Uh, Paulina fell for this guy uh, named Steve. Uh, he was a World War II pilot, I believe, but some of the things he experienced in World War II left him jittery. So for the, most of his adult life, he was really a functional alcoholic. But being the good Catholics that they were, right? You know, they got married... 
And boom, they had a kid, and that was my mom. And Paulina, things didn't work out with Steve, and there were a string of guys. She was actually married, I think, six different times. But when my mother was about a year and a half old, uh, Paulina decided, look, this is too much work. I can't do this. You go live with your sister, Mary. I don't want to raise you. So off she went. My mother, that was my mother, my mother met this Baptist from Indiana, got married. So her grandmother didn't want their kid. Her mother didn't want her kid. And then she has me and Brent in short order. Boom, she's now got two kids. Only she did something different. She stayed married. She didn't send us off to live with anybody. In fact, when my dad died, they had been married 43 years straight, both of them faithfully to each other. After a bout with cancer, she decided, you know what? God is good. He is good, and I can trust him. I find it incredibly ironic that the great-grandson of a mobster and the grandson of somebody who didn't want to even bother with children helped start a church that is dedicated to helping families love each other well and pass on faith to their kids. Doesn't God have a wickedly wonderful sense of humor in just four generations? In just four generations. Here's what I know. God is at work in my life, and God is at work in my family tree, and God is at work in my part of his story. Here's what I know about you. God is at work in your life. God is at work in your family tree, and God is at work in your part of his story, and you can trust him. I'm going to invite our musicians to come up, and we're going to close out with a time together, and I invite you to talk to God. And on a practical level, I want to encourage you to read in the book of Genesis this week, chapter 13, and read several chapters, the story arc of Abraham. And look at all the sin and dysfunctionality that plays out in Abraham's family. And yet, God makes a decision. I'm going to bless everyone on the planet through you, oh dysfunctional person who doesn't know how to treat his wife right. <laughs> okay, Genesis chapter 13 and following. Will you stand and sing with us? And I want to pray for us. God, we want the world to see your goodness. We want people to see Jesus for who he is. And we confess that there are times we have, Satan speaks to us, man. There are times when we doubt, and, and it happens. We do. There are times we doubt your goodness, but we know and we acknowledge, we see right here in Genesis 3 that you did not abandon Adam and Eve and you are not going to abandon us. Help us, God to have faith this day. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.